please have your Bibles turn to John 18. To set the scene for you, Jesus has been arrested. As Al had mentioned several weeks ago, when he preached from the first half of John 18, Christ, in effect, has initiated the events that would now lead to his own crucifixion. But first, Christ must appear before Pilate. He must be put on trial. And so we read, starting with John 18, verse 28. Please follow along with me. Then they, the Jewish leaders, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So here's our preface. Now the trial begins officially at verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Verse 30, they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. By way of side notes, you see Roman capital punishment was the prerogative of the Roman Empire alone. And their form of capital punishment was crucifixion. The fulfillment of Christ's words in John 12, 32, when he said, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Lifted up, his referring here to the cross. So verse 33, Pilate now goes backstage to question Jesus. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? That you is emphatic there. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? In other words, is this a personal question? Or are you parroting the claim against me? Jesus is making it personal to Pilate. He's making it personal to us this morning as well. Verse 35, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests had delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say, correctly, that's implied there, that I am king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Either convinced there was no answer or didn't want to hear it. The irony is he doesn't wait for the answer from the only one who could give it. We read on verse 38b. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. 
Yes, and he was an insurrectionist. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I ask this morning that you would impress the truth, the reality of your kingship upon us. Oh, Father, this morning, I pray that you would awaken slumbering hearts and lives. Lord, I ask this morning that you would redirect our wayward eyes that we might see you, that we might know you, that we might worship you as king. We pray. Amen. Well, Pontius Pilate asked the question that is relevant to each one of us today. That question is, what is the truth? In other words, what is the truth? What is reality? What is the truth for which Christ came into the world to bear witness to? The answer to that question is the one that Pontius Pilate could not understand. The answer to that question is one which the Jews did not want to hear. The truth is that Christ reigns. The truth is that he is king. He is the full disclosure of God's reign and rule here on earth. But the problem's this, friends. The rub is this. Unless God opens our eyes to see Christ's reign and kingdom, we will not see it. In fact, we will not want to see it. In Haiti, this morning, almost a month later, over a month later, there are 200,000 people estimated who have died since the January 12th earthquake, according to World Magazine. Injured, 90... 194,000, including untold amputees. Homeless, 1 million. People living in makeshift camps, 800,000. People needing food aid, 2 million people. Structures destroyed, 70% of Port-au-Prince, 90% around the quake's epicenter. Behind these stats are real people who are waking up this morning in unbearable pain, suffering, and anguish. And humanly speaking, their future is grim and at best uncertain. So you're telling me that Christ reigns, that Christ is king. Where, cries the Haitian orphan. How, cries a doctor who makes one more amputation on a gangrene limb. How, cries the relief aid worker, as he or her gives out his last food ration. Maybe you're asking the same question this morning. As you look at the rubble, as you look at the suffering, not just in Haiti, but in your own life as well. I believe that God would be saying to you this morning that Jesus Christ reigns, that he is king. But know this, he's no earthly king. Oh, and his kingdom is not of this world. As he has come to rule your life, sometimes it will be in the most unexpected ways. But know this, he is king. The first point in your notes. We read from John 18, verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly. You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world 
to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is this truth? What is this reality to which Christ came to testify? It's the truth that Jesus Christ reigns as king. What is the truth? That the robber, the insurrectionist named Barabbas, whom the Jews and the crowds chanted for, was a false hope. The zealot, like many others who had gone before him, had hoped to liberate the Jews from the oppressive Roman political rule. See the word Barabbas, the name Barabbas, literally means son of the father. Bar Abbas, Abba father. Son of the father. He was just a man, just a son, who could not save his people. So what is the truth? That Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of the Father who came to earth to reveal God's reign and rule right before Pilate's very own eyes and ours as well. It's a kingship and a reign that Pilate knew nothing about which no Roman governor nor Jewish leader could thwart or could put to an end. Meet King Jesus in our text apprehended by a band of soldiers at night, whisked off to an illegal trial in the middle of the night under the cloak of secrecy and expediency. Meet Jesus, who at this very time of the trial, who at Passover was the Passover lamb that was glowing, was going to the slaughter as our king. The only charge against him was this, that he was the king of the Jews, This term, king of the Jews, was actually used and applied also to King Herod, Herod the Great, who ruled over the Jewish people. It was a charge of political and messianic overtones, and it played to Roman fears. The Jews knew exactly what they were doing, the Jewish leaders. They used this title of Jesus to stir up a Roman concern for insurrection, for insubordination, in hopes that they would play and pray on the fears of Pontius Pilate, wanting to squash any potential forming rebellion against Caesar or Rome. Hoping all along that Jesus would be sentenced to death, to crucifixion on a cross. And here's the irony. Jesus, as king, was guilty as charged. It's a charge that he never denies in the text. It's a charge that baffled Pilate, but did not baffle Jesus. He was, and he is, the king of all kings who had come to earth as the king of the Jews, the awaited Messiah. We read in the very first chapter of John, verse 49, when the to-be-disciple Nathaniel is called out from under a tree, he sees Jesus. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. The Jewish, belie- the Jewish leaders, they didn't believe that Jesus was the king of the Jews. Pilate didn't understand how Jesus could be the king of the Jews. And the Jews in the crowd, and in our text, didn't want Jesus, the king of the Jews. They all missed it. Why? Because they failed to grasp the very nature of Christ's true reign in his kingdom. The question is, 
do we miss it today? Jesus is a king. And secondly, Jesus has a kingdom. Each of the gospel accounts records Jesus before Pilate when he is asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? But only John in this text recounts Christ's dialogue with Pilate. Only John in this gospel records Christ's affirmation and explanation of his kingship. So we read in verse 36 of John 18, Jesus answered, that's Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. What is this kingdom that Christ is referring to? It's his rule. It's his reign. And it's the realm in which he exercises his dominion and his rule in the lives and the hearts of his people. As plainly as Christ could say it to Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Literally, it's not from here. In other words, Pilate, you can't see it because you're looking in the wrong place. So what is the nature of Christ's kingdom? If he does reign, he has a kingdom. Where is it? What does it look like? What's its nature? Number one, it's a spiritual kingdom. It's not of this world. Christ is speaking of the nature of his kingdom. If his kingdom were this world, yeah, he would marshal his disciples to fight and protect him from arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, Jesus isn't denying that he is king, but rather claiming that the nature, the order, or the realm of his kingdom fundamentally differs from that of all world kingdoms. It's a spiritual kingdom. In other words, his kingdom must be understood in terms of his reign and rule. His kingdom is not a territory. His kingdom is not a piece of geography. His kingdom is not a physical place. It is not a physical space. His kingdom is not of the world. What good news this would have been for John's original readers, those Jews who were scattered throughout the Roman pagan empires, those minority Christians who often were persecuted or ostracized for the faith. What good news to hear. My kingdom is not of this world. What good news for those Christian Haitians. See, that many of them, they're not under any illusion this morning that Christ's kingdom is not of this world as they look at the destruction and the rubble around them. Many of our brothers and sisters in Cuba, they're under no illusion that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. But you know what? We as American Christians, we can often be deceived, can't we? I think as Americans, we are vulnerable to believing that Christ's kingdom is here on earth. We are the rich and powerful empire-building Americans. See, we're vulnerable to think that, yeah, Christ's kingdom is really material. It is physical. It is political. We think that we can build pockets of peace and prosperity in our lives. We think we can do anything that we set our minds to. We think, when we're honest, that we can have a perfect heaven here on earth. And we can have it now. It's not unique to us as Americans, but I think in many ways we can be deceived. But think, yes, God's kingdom 
can be built here on earth. It is a physical place. Oh, we must be careful not to lose sight that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Oh, so many times I want it to be. So many times I want a slice of heaven right here on earth now. I want no enemies. I want no crises. I want no hassles. I just want peace on earth. All I'm asking for the perfect church. All I'm asking for the perfect home. All I'm asking for is a perfect sermon, Lord. All I'm asking for is a perfect lawn. <laughs> a perfect lawn. Perfect lawn, which is a perfect metaphor and illustration for me and my life. Some of you know I enjoy landscaping. I have a little patch of what is now pathetic grass in front of my house. It's been a hard, cold winter here in South Florida. If you're not from South Florida, you're probably laughing right now. Okay, granted, for us, it has been cold. You see this grass? It's my little sacred space. It's my Garden of Eden right here in South Florida. However, you know what? God somehow doesn't quite see it that way. You see, some dog has taken a liking to my lawn and keeps pooping on it. And some dog owner in my neighborhood is complicit in this nefarious act that has been going on for almost one year. Not that I'm counting. I have yet to catch this criminal in his or her act. I have literally considered an all-night stakeout. Behind my fence, hosing them down as they come by. I think it's early morning. Oh, shame on me. I have told my kids to be in the lookout. We're on high alert in the Smithson household, particularly between 6 and 7 a.m. in the morning, to look out for any suspicious dog and owner. Oh, how my children have heard me say, Ugh! As I've carried another doggy bag to the trash. I've considered putting signs on my lawn, speaking to this person. The only bummer is I'm a pastor, and most people don't know it. <laughs> I can't think any words kind enough at the moment. I have had dreams of re-gifting this earthly package onto my neighbor's doorstep. All right? I admit it. Many times. I have been consumed by this thought, as you can tell. <laughs> Every time I mow or clip or weed or water my lawn. Can I just tell you? I don't know how to put it. God is committed to pooping on your lawn. <laughs> now, that's a little blasphemous. Let me put it this way. Maybe this is a better way to put it. God is committing to bring dogs to poop on your lawn, your little sacred space, your little pocket of peace and prosperity, your little kingdom here on earth. You see, what's sacred to you isn't necessarily sacred to God. What's sacred to God is your heart, and he wants to rule and reign in your heart before he reigns on your lawn or in your home. You see, when we start losing sight of the nature of God's Jesus' kingdom, you will start building, you will start investing in worldly kingdoms. You will start working for the perfect kingdom here on earth now. And you will be frustrated. All the while you're thinking you're doing God a favor. 
Perhaps for you, your heaven on earth is not your lawn, but it's a perfect home. You want everything in your domain just right, organized, and neat. You want heaven to come to your interior design. And you're frustrated when it doesn't occur. You're angry. You say, you know what? I don't want a perfect home. I just want perfect children. Yeah, perfect children. Absolutely well-behaved. I just want angels. Oh, I know. They're rascals and they're sinners. But I want angels. When they act according to the nature, i.e. sinners, you get mad. There's no grace there in your household. You've already built, or attempted to build, your little kingdom here on earth. Perhaps all you want is, you know what, it's not a home, it's not children, I just want a conflict-free relationship. Yeah, right. Conflict-free relationship, you got it. Perhaps you just want a little personal peace and space in your life. Oh, my ass, as I come home, get a cold drink, plop my feet up on the couch, and chill. But you know what happens by God's wonderful design. He doesn't let you have it. And all hell breaks loose. You just want that perfect job. You just want that perfect college. The list goes on. Well, how do you know if you're investing in some earthly kingdom? That's not Christ's kingdom. It's when you were denied that little pocket of peace and prosperity in your life. When you're denied that little sacred space that you have carved out for yourself that no one can touch. Or it's when that political candidate you voted for is not elected. Or that piece of legislation is passed or is not passed. Oh, and you're angry. You're fuming. And you fight and you rebel and you join the crowd and you yell, Barabbas! Barabbas! Anything that threatens your little kingdom, you deny or you crucify. Even Christ Jesus himself. That's what the Jewish leaders did. The Sanhedrin did. In a desire to protect and preserve their own privileged status among the Romans, they were quite willing to crucify Christ. That they were obsessed with it. That's what Pilate did when his job was on the line. Even though he did not believe he was guilty. In order to pacify the Jews. He allowed an innocent man to die. It's what you and I can do as well in our attempts to have our kingdom right now here on earth. And it's through such frustrations that God delights in bursting your bubble and mine, of blowing up your vain hopes and dreams. Why? That he may rule, that he may reign in your hearts. See, it's not that we have to abandon all earthly pursuits, but God wants to redeem those earthly pursuits. God kingdom, kingdoms, God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, comes first to our hearts. Oh, it'll come one day to our homes as well. There's only one way his kingdom comes to a fallen world and hearts. Only one way. It's by the cross by his death on a cross. Point two, what's the nature of his kingdom? It's spiritual, it's not of this world. Number two, it's redemptive. It comes by the cross. How does Christ drive home his kingship to sinful, 
rebellious human beings. How does he advance his kingdom? It's not through physical force, as we've learned. No, it's by his physical death upon a cross. Catch this. Jesus' reign and rule is exercised by dying for his enemies. That's you and me. See, here's the biggest irony in this whole narrative and in this whole gospel. The Jews, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, in collaboration with Pilate, put Jesus to death in an attempt to preserve their own kingdom and their own status. But in doing so, in reality, they were advancing the very kingdom of Jesus by unwittingly crucifying him on the cross. Do you see it? And it's all according to Christ's foreordained plan. Verse 32, 32, all according to his design and will. It's through Christ's death on a cross by which Christ forcibly and decisively comes in to conquer sin. To forcibly conquer sin, Satan, and death. It's by his death on this cross, his death, that his subjects are one. And earthly kingdoms are toppled. It's through his death on the cross, by his atoning sacrifice for our sins, by bearing the wrath of God upon himself as the punishment for the sins that we deserve, that he wins loyal subjects, you and me, all those who are now in Christ, to his rule and to his realm. To quote George Ladd, the kingdom makes its way into the world with its redeeming power. Instead of making changes in the external or political order of things, as the Jews had hoped for, and as Pilate and the Romans feared, the kingdom of God first comes and changes the spiritual order, beginning with our lives, by redeeming them. It can work, this kingdom can work in ways that can never be recognized by the world. It works where and when and in places that you least expect it. You see, Christ's kingdom is growing. It is advancing. How? By redeeming his adopted people from every tribe and every nation at the cost of his very life. An illustration of this redeeming power of Christ's kingdom and the cost hit home this week as I read an article about one orphan in Haiti. His name was Arno. When Arno was two months old, he was matched to be adopted with a young Dutch couple, Richard and Rowena Pett. This couple gave Arno a plush penguin bird with the word love inscribed upon it. It became his most treasured and perhaps his only possession. But it also represented a promise to the orphan Arno. The promise of adoption that one day his adoptive parents, his new mother and father, would come to Haiti to claim him as his own. Nearly three years later, the adoption was made complete when Richard and Rowena traveled to Port-au-Prince in January. Then the earthquake hit. Writer David Charter tells a story. Dutch TV cameras were on hand during the frantic search by an international rescue team with members from the Netherlands, Britain, and Canada. Lying there amid the rubble was the unmistakable 
blue and yellow toy bird, Mr. Penguin, marked with the word love that went everywhere with Arno. What the camera did not show were the three dead bodies found intertwined together as if Rowena and Richard had tried to put protective arms around Arno as the masonry began to fall. The bodies of Richard and Rowena and Arno Pet were taken together to the Netherlands just as they had been found together in the rubble of the hotel villa. They had been a family for only a few hours on earth, but a family all the same. Albert Moeller commenting on this movie, Moving Story Rights. Of course, for the Christian, there is far more to the story. In the story of Arno Pet, we find a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are the sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, but an heir through God, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. An heir to whom? An heir to the king. Arno Pett began his life as an orphan. He ended it as a son. He was abandoned at his birth, but he died in the arms of his parents. He did not die as Arno. He died as Arno Pett. In the rubble of the hotel villa, the film crew found the bodies of Richard and Rowena and Arno Pett. In the same rubble, we find a picture of the gospel of Christ. He who has eyes to see, let him see the kingdom of God. Friends, do you see? Amidst the rubble and in the anguish in Haiti, we see a picture of Christ's kingdom. We see a picture of what happened when Jesus, the king, went to the cross, dying on the cross for his adopted children, covering them with his sin, that they, that you, that me, may be dead to sin and now alive to him. That, my friends, is the gospel. That is Christ exercising his reign and his rule as a crucified king and as our savior. It's through Christ's own death on the cross that kingdom life comes to us. His kingdom is found wherever he rules, wherever he reigns, in the hearts of men and women, young and old. For the poorest nation to the richest. When you look around, what do you see? Do you see rubble? Or do you see redemption? Do you see Christ redeeming power? Do you see the kingdom of God at work? Jesus reigning, Jesus ruling, Jesus cleansing, Jesus reconciling. That is the kingdom of God. Come to us, my friends, here on earth. What do you see in us Sunday morning? God's redeeming power, wooing the hearts of men and women to himself, reconciling estranged orphans and bringing them into his kingdom. That's what we're about here at Paul and Vista. We're not 
the kingdom of God, but we are a manifestation of it when God is ruling and reigning as he is in our midst. What do you see at home group, through relationships? Do you see Christ at work, reigning and ruling in the hearts of those you're speaking with, fellowshipping with, ministering to? Oh, he's at work. Christ is ruling and reigning. What do you see in your own family, in your spouse, in your children, with your parents? Do you see Christ at work? Do you see Christ's kingdom come? How about in your own life? Do you see it? Jesus' kingdom is advancing. It's advancing in the lives of his subjects. Wherever the gospel is preached and whenever it is applied to our hearts, we have the kingdom. When you have a heated argument with your spouse and you tearfully confess, repent and bow your knee in prayer together, Jesus reigns. His kingdom comes. When God helps you with that crippling fear to reach out and share the gospel with that coworker or longtime friend, and you're doing with trembling in your voice, with shaking in your hands, as you hold that Bible or that tract and you share with that person, Jesus reigns. His kingdom comes. When you catch your child in that sin, and you share the gospel with him or her for the 200th time. Jesus reigns. His kingdom comes. When you give that check in faith, when you give away that bag of groceries to those in need in the name of Christ, Jesus reigns. His kingdom comes. His kingdom's coming, my friends. And it is here. But something you may be asking if Jesus' kingdom is by nature spiritual, does he care about the physical? How about the suffering and the pain and the anguish that we see in this world that we experience even as Christians today? Friends, I want to tell you that Christ rules over every cell of your body. He rules over every blade of grass and every piece of rubble. He cares about the material, and yes, he cares about the physical as well. He cares about you, and he's come to reign and rule over all creation. He's come to rule over some by righteous judgment. But he's come mercifully to rule over his own people through salvation secured at the cross. And that Salvation secured at the cross guarantees as many of the provinces of kingdom life. Arno Pet may have died in the earthquake along with his adoptive parents, but all those who are in Christ will raise to new life in glorified bodies. When Christ returns the second time, he will come to judge the unrepentant sinner, but he will glorify the saved saint. And on that day, if you are in Christ... Hear this. There will be no more amputees in Christ's kingdom. There will be no more orphans. There will be no more earthquakes. There will be no more pain, no more sickness. And there will be no more tears. That brings up the final point about Christ's reign and kingdom. Instead of timing. Instead of timing. As many theologians have put it, Christ's kingdom is already and not yet. 
That's the mystery. That's the tension we faced as Christians. That is that the cross, Christ, destroyed the power of sin. And yet, its destructive effects still cling to us here on earth. He has destroyed Satan. He did it at the cross. In principle, but temptation and deceit remain until Christ's second coming, until his return. Oscar Coleman compares this to the distinction between D-Day and V-Day in World War II. On D-Day, you know the story. The Allied troops entered France, in principle dooming the Third Reich. But there was many months yet of bitter fighting until the Nazis surrendered on V-Day, that's Victory Day. Church, we live between D-Day and V-Day. It's not wrong to want V-Day. I want V-Day. But D-Day must f- come first to our own hearts. You get it? Death to sin, then we may be alive to him. First comes the King, the Lamb of God who took away our sins, Christ's first coming. Then comes the line of the tribe of Judah when he comes to conquer sin, suffering, death, and Satan once for all. First comes the lamb, then comes the lion when all his enemies will be defeated. You see, it's the lion. It's the conquering hero that the crowd in our narrative, that cried Barabbas, that's what they were looking forward to as they claimed and chanted his name. But they didn't want the king who had first come as a suffering servant. They didn't want that king who had come as a lamb led to the slaughter. They wanted the lion. They wanted him now. They wanted the conquering hero in power and glory. What they failed to realize is that the lamb is the lion. He's one and the same. He's Christ Jesus, our king. The Jews wanted a national V-Day without the D-Day. Friend, there was no victory day without a doomsday of the cross. Yes, the battle rages on here on earth now. The earthquakes will continue in our world and in our very lives. You can count on that. But the redemption that we've experienced in Christ is our guarantee that he will make all things new, including the physical. What he has begun, he will complete. In the words, once again, of George Ladd, what Christ has done guarantees what he will do. What Christ has done guarantees what he will do. That's why we engage in mercy ministry in Haiti. That's why we seek for a better society, a better community, or even a better lawn as well. Not because this piece of real estate or that organization or this political party or this nation or that is the kingdom of God. It's not. Because our service in this world points to Christ's loving, ruling, and redeeming power, which one, will, one day will be displayed in a new heaven, in a new earth. Friends, do you suffer this morning from chronic illness? Do the same sins beset you over and over again? Do you see and do you have enemies and opposition on every side? Is the light too often eclipsed by darkness? 
Is it hard to see Christ's redeeming power through the rubble? Are you weary of doing good? Know this, Christ reigns. The day is coming when all his enemies will be defeated. All sin, satanic power, sickness, and suffering will be gone forever in Haiti, in your family, in your life, for all those in Christ. And you will reign with Christ the King, the Messiah, forevermore. Speaking of this day, this new order, this new creation, we read in conclusion of Christ our King. In Revelation 21, 4 and 5, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So says our King. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I want to be moved, and I am by these truths this morning, that Christ, you reign. Sometimes I only see rubble. I only see ruin. But Lord, help us to see your redeeming power. Help us to see and grasp your ruling reign in our lives. We want to know you, Jesus, as our king. We want to know your kingdom come. So do your work even now. Assure us right now that you are king, that there is no other, that you are here, that you are present, and you are ruling as our king. Have way, O Lord. Rule now, we pray, in our hearts and in our minds, even now, as we sing.